Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, August 3rd, and I'm the host of this episode, Emily Flippin. Today, I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Asit Sharma as we do just a Motley collection of earnings reports and, and dives into some of our favorite consumer goods companies that have reported over the past couple of weeks. Asit, thank you so much for joining. Emily, thanks so much for having me. Uh, at that time of year, we're starting to get bombarded with more and more earnings reports. So this is always a fun conversation to have. I selfishly wanted to talk about, uh, in particular, I guess, some of the news around hard seltzer because seeing the earnings report from from Boston Beer Company, uh, Sam Adams, as people may be more familiar with it, as well as from Constellation Brands, has me thinking so much about that industry. I, I don't know what we're going to title this episode, though, because I know that we're going to talk a bit about you know beer sales, hard seltzer sales, but I think we're also going to talk some Pinterest, um, some Upwork even. So we have just a weird collection, I guess, of businesses, but it should be fun regardless. By the time we finish, there's going to be a theme that emerges from our collective subconscious so that we can title this episode before it goes up on all those the great outlets where you can find industry focus. Emily, I want to say really quickly, um, I have been on a seltzer run lately, but not hard seltzer. We've been drinking a lot of... Gosh, uh, Topo Chico, um, Perrier, Gerolsteiner, and some flavored seltzers as well. I used to laugh at my friends who consumed so much, um, so much of these canned like seltzer waters, and I've become one of those people. I don't know if it was the pandemic that did it to me. Do you do you partake in soft and or hard seltzers? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> I, I used to be a diet soda loyalist. I, I also had the same thoughts about people who spent their time drinking sparkling waters. It was just, I, I was never quite sweet enough for me. They always felt kind of flavorless. And I, I was a loyalist, I suppose, to diet soda. But then the pandemic hit, I was working remotely and, and still am uh, all the time. And I would just sit there at my desk with these two liters of diet soda next to me. And before I realized it, I was I was drinking so much diet soda that I said, okay, that's it. Something has to give. And so I replaced my diet soda consumption with sparkling water, what I presume to be a healthier alternative. And I have now become one of those people who has sparkling water just constantly at my desk and my fridge. So this is a trend that I'm I'm really aware of. And companies are aware of it too. You mentioned Topo Chico as an example. And I believe while they're known for their sparkling water, I think they've just recently, if they haven't launched already, are in the process of launching a hard seltzer brand with with their their Topo Chico logo on it. So they're aware. This is this is a trend that despite headlines after Boston Beer's reports, I think it's here to stay. I don't see it going away. It might lose some momentum as all trends do, but it's certainly not going to be in my opinion, completely upset again by, say, the beer market or the wine market. I think Coca-Cola executives will be reassured and happy to hear your thoughts on that because, you know, Coca-Cola bought Topo Chico a few years ago and wasn't long after that that management started signaling, we want to turn this into, not the whole brand, we want to extend the brand into a hard seltzer brand. And if I'm remembering correctly, there's 
their launch, I guess it was in Latin America, was successful. And, and now we're going to have manufacturing here in the US. So you'll be able to get some hard Topo Chico soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know me, I, I get easily irritated by things. And one of the things that easily irritated me, I believe it was last week, maybe the week before that, um, I believe it was on the 22nd of July. Um, one of the things that easily irritated me was this headline that I saw published by CNN after Boston Beer reported earnings. And the headline was so assertive that it just bothered me. Um, but it said, the hard seltzer craze has come to an end. And they used Boston Beer's earnings uh, where they, as many investors may be aware, if you haven't already, they had much worse than expected sales of their hard seltzers. And, and more importantly, uh, were guiding for for much worse, I suppose, sales of hard seltzer in comparison to the guidance they had provided earlier. And from that alone, CNN came out, you know, it's dead. That's it. The hard seltzers are done. And it frustrated me. And I know this is a headline, so I won't read too much into it. But I'm, I am curious about how you read the Boston beer situation and how you think about the market. And I, I call it the hard seltzer market, perfectly aware of the fact that Boston beer and others obviously sell beverages that are not just hard seltzer. But the hard seltzer has been responsible for the majority of growth in the alcohol segment over the past few years. So it's interesting to see that slow down a bit, even noting that seltzer is still growing faster than most other lines, including beer. Well, for one, Emily, I want to say that we must be two grumpy people because I often have this experience of reading a headline that draws a larger implication from a prominent company's earnings report. And I usually exclaim out loud and we uh, fell for shake it. my head. <laughs> yeah. But the seltzer market, it, it is here to stay. You are right. We had this intermediate period a few years ago, the transition between the kinds of beers our parents drank, and the craft market in this transition to a, a really more variegated market for beer, where it looked like you're just going to have these these two uh, sets of the beer industries, these old school lager type beers, and then lots of hoppy craft beers. And few people saw the, this hard seltzer wave coming. But now we're several years into it. And as a category, it's not going anywhere. And I think as we go into the show, we've got another company that reported that demonstrates the principle that you're talking about, Emily. The market is there. Maybe the growth is going to decelerate. Let's hop right into Boston Beer's earnings because this will give us some context around it. And then maybe in just giving a few um, quick initial points, I can also uh, weigh in on on the other side of your questions. What about Boston Beer? If, If they whiffed on earnings because seltzer sales were down, is this the end of Boston Beer? So, they reported on the 22nd of July, not a super recent earnings report, but pertinent to our discussion today. And also worth mentioning because Boston Beer shares took a 25% haircut after the earnings release. I checked yesterday, Emily, they haven't really recovered very much since then. Shares are now down about 44% from the all-time high that the SAM symbol set this spring. But you know, at $8.8 billion, the company's market cap is still double what it was just before we went into the pandemic last spring. When we look at that report on the surface of it, it's a great report. Depletions, which is a measure of how uh, beer bottles or wine bottles move off 
the shelves of retailers, convenience stores, wine shops, etc. Um, it's just a fancy way of, uh, or I should say it's not a fancy way, it's a term of art in the industry for looking at how fast inventory is moving once it leaves a distributor. Depletions increased 24% year over year in last quarter. Total shipments increased 27% year over year. The thing that investors didn't like, Emily, is that the company pulled back its full year estimates for depletion and shipments growth to just 25 to 40% growth against what they were previously talking about earlier this year of 40% to 50% growth. And here I'm going to read uh, Jim uh, Cock. He is the chairman now, but the the founder and, and previously longtime CEO, he's the face of Boston. I'm going to read his comments on why the company was pulling back and then get your opinions. And then I'll, I'll, again, I'll weigh, I'll weigh in also on Boston beer and the category in general. He said, as the hard seltzer category and the overall beer industry were softer than we had anticipated, sorry, he said that the hard uh, seltzer category and, and beer industry were softer than anticipated. And now I quote, hard seltzer category growth was negatively impacted by several developments. One, slowing growth in household penetration as the market matures and there is less new trial. Two, a gradual transition of volume to the on-premise channel as hard seltzer becomes a more regular option in that channel. Three, new hard seltzer brands at retail that resulted in a proliferation of choices and consumer confusion. And four, a challenging comparative period of significant pantry loading related to on-premise restrictions in the second quarter of 2020. So what he's basically saying here is that the market is maturing, so there's less uh, response when companies put out new products. Consumers are a little bit less excited about these new hard seltzer brands. There's a gradual transition to on-premise consumption. So you're not just buying it anymore and drinking it at home. You're more likely to order it when you're at a restaurant. Also saying that, of course, there's now so many companies are trying to compete in this space. Customers are confused. And then we had this difficult comparison to the pandemic quarter last year. I read out of this, it's it's sort of a blip in the road for Boston Beer. You and I have had some conversations about this company um, outside this podcast, and I, I always say I admire the way that management is really resilient and understands in advance which is the next trend they need to plow into to keep sales going, even as those older brands like Samuel Adams are losing market share to smaller craft beers. So what are your thoughts on this quarter? That's sort of the the overview. Yes. And in regards to this quarter in particular, I think it shows the challenge of providing guidance when you probably shouldn't be providing guidance given the, the landscape being so unpredictable. And uh, Boston Beer made the mistake of providing really strong guidance and having to pull it back as a result of something that I think they probably should have seen coming. Hindsight is always 2020, of course, and that is the reemergence of people into the summer going out, going to bars, going to restaurants, consuming less alcohol at home, as well as just the maturation, maturation, the, the, the hard seltzer category maturing with time, which would, of course, cause a more competition, but less excitement as well. 
So I think there's some guidance that played into this big fall we're seeing here. But I also think that Boston Beer, just thinking about hard seltzer in general, is really well positioned. They're one of the top three brands right now in terms of market share, and they have really strong distribution. And I actually think this is where Boston Beer and, and Truly Hard Seltzer, which is their hard seltzer brand, can differentiate themselves over the course of the next year or so from even those of, of say, the Corona Hard Seltzer, which we'll talk about, and of course, the White Claws of the world. That is their really strong distribution. I think uh, truly has some of the best distribution right now in terms of hard seltzer brands out of things like restaurants and bars. The problem is it's it's a harder sell for somebody to go into a restaurant or bar and decide that they're going to order a, a 7 or $8, you know, uh, White Claw or truly hard seltzer, which they've been consuming at home for a year at a much cheaper price point. I think that's a harder sell. But the reason why on a bigger scale, I still really like this business is because I think there's optionality, whether it be hard seltzer or other categories. And one of the things that they're doing, which I think is an maybe an underappreciated acquisition was their dogfish head acquisition. I believe that was back in 2018, 2019, if memory serves. Acquisition of a small craft brewer, small, <laughs> large craft brewer relative to craft brewer sizes. And while dogfish, its brand, its beer brands have been growing, I believe, at the high single digits for Boston Beer Company for a while now, they're talking about doing things like making canned craft cocktails with the dogfish head logo and brand on it. That's valuable, I think, and I think they're thinking about what the next thing after hard seltzer is. So I like the fact that they seem to be a little bit more thoughtful about what the next aspect for growth is for this business beyond just hard seltzer. So for that reason, I, I still really like this business. I, I'll I'll stop. <laughs> At some point, I need to move on from this, but I will say, Austin, I think you you're downplaying your thoughts on this business because prior to this earnings report, we were chatting about Boston Beer and you always noted, or you noted that the business always seems to move really dramatically, the stock price at least, moves really dramatically based off of depletions and, and shipments. And that's exactly what we saw happen in this earnings report. Well, you know, that has two sides of, of that particular coin. A lot of times when they find the next thing, the, the next big innovation, the stock responds in kind. And that's why while the stock is a little volatile, it's hard to write it off now. I do always have the feeling like, okay, is this the last time they've been able to innovate their way out of what is essentially a slowing traditional craft beer market? Because like it or not, they're still associated with the sort of first vanguard of craft beer, the, the older school labels. What they have in, in Doghead is, um, I think, a much uh, more robust brand that they can use to um, in that innovation space to, to pull through their wide distribution system. And there is something there, Emily, that they can really compound over the years. And this was sort of the thought behind that big acquisition. Last point on this, Truly Hard Seltzer, even though it caused a lot of uh, problems this quarter, that's that's the the biggest brand in, in their portfolio of, of hard seltzers, it's still growing at 2.7 times the hard seltzer category. So it's slowly gaining market share. I think that it's for, for uh, Boston Beer, it's really a matter of finding where that equilibrium point is and then moving on to new investment. This category, as we said before, it's here to stay. 
but it may not provide super fast growth. So where they invest next will be really important in the next few quarters to see where the, the brand investment comes. And on the flip side of that, we had Constellation Brands. And I'm bringing up, this is an old earnings report, I think from the end of June. So this has been marinating on the market for over a month now, if you will. But whenever I I get reports, especially something like that from Boston Beer, where the stock moves 20, 25% on the news, I love to compare it to some of their competitors. And one of which is Constellation Brands. Now, Constellation Brands has been in a bit of a divestiture mode when regarding their, I guess, worst performing wine brand. And of course, they still have largely a beer-based business, owning the Corona brand, um, owning Modelo, for instance. These are beer brands that have consistently moved with their demographic, right? So pretty strong depletions and shipments for these beer brands, historically speaking. But they also have Corona Hard Seltzer, which is one of those, I believe it is a top three or top four seltzer in the U.S. right now, which is competing with the likes of Truly. And I think investors were maybe a little bit more forgiving with Constellation Brands and the performance of the Corona Hard Seltzer because expectations there were much lower. And management didn't necessarily provide really strong guidance that they then had to pull back, of course. I wonder what the story would have looked like if neither of these companies had given guidance before this quarter. (laughs) It's so interesting when you track the trajectory of Constellation Brands over the last seven to 10 years because they've had a multi-year lift since 2013 when they bought this portfolio of Mexican brands from Anheuser-Busch InBev for about $5 billion. That actually was the um, portfolio that was owned by a company called Grupo Modelo. And Constellation essentially bought bought the rights to market these and sell these beers in the US from Anheuser-Busch InBev. Since then, they've poured billions into expanding their production and distribution facilities just for this small portfolios portfolio of beers. And what's so interesting, Emily, is that Krona has been the brand that's propelled the growth since this purchase. And now, today, it's really a slower growth vehicle. As you were pointing out, what's really pushing the company forward are sales of Pacifico Claro, um, sales of Modelo. Now, why is the company excited about Corona? Just as you mentioned, they think there's a ton of opportunity to extend that brand, which is getting just a little bit tired, into hard seltzer. They see a huge opportunity here. They're going to launch, or actually they did launch in June last month, Corona Hard Seltzer Limonada, which is a new variant of their Corona Hard Seltzer. So, where Boston Beer seems to see maturity, Constellation Brands sees opportunity. I want to say here that part of the way these companies view their near-term opportunity versus maturity has to do with their investment uh, in production capacity and in inventory. One of the things that tripped Boston Beer up was that they overinvested for the coming quarters based on what they saw late last year and early this year, management was like, let's go all out. We got this. We're going to have a bunch of inventory of the hard seltzers because they're just flying off the shelves. And then to their surprise, this was sort of the thread that went through the last earnings call. To their surprise, uh, the category softened just a bit, at least their sales, especially with the the. Uh, Truly brand started to decelerate very suddenly. 
on this other side, you've got uh, a company in Constellation Brands, which has proved really savvy at expanding its production capacity. They've invested in plants in Mexico. They, I think, I would say they're, if, if Boston Beer is, is a, is a master company at investing in capacity and distribution, I would say that Constellation Brands is even better. <laughs> so seeing them build more capacity f- to get their hard seltzer brand, which is, as you mentioned, currently number four, into that top three category, which management stated on their earnings call is their goal. Guess who's number two? Is <laughs> truly hard seltzer. Um, White Claw is number one, and Emily, I forget who's the number three. But you've got a market share fight um, that's being built here. And I think it's going to be fun to watch these heavyweights slug it out for Boston Beer to maintain its number two position and for Constellation Brands to try to bring Corona from a number four to a number three or potentially take that number two spot. And I have to mention something here, even though it's probably far further out on on the radar of both investors and consumers and even Constellation Brands management team themselves. But they do have that pretty large stake in Canopy Growth, which is a Canadian cannabis business who has spent the last year or so spending a lot of time and a lot of effort to build out their cannabis-based beverage line. And while that's obviously not getting traction in the United States anytime soon unless federal regulations change, what they can release to the United States via Constellation brand's distribution network is CBD-based beverages. And they've been hesitant to do that in the past because of some confusing rules around the FDA and whether or not you can put CBD in food or beverages. But it seems like they're moving forward with it even without that guidance, which I think is a, it's a small step, but a big move, if that makes sense. I believe they're targeting a rollout in seven U.S. states right now for a CBD-based beverage made in conjunction with Canopy Growth across the United States. That will do a lot more for Canopy Growth than it will for Constellation Brands in terms of revenue growth. Obviously, this is a very, very small part of even Canopy Growth's business right now. But I still like seeing those moves. Again, when we ask ourselves, okay, what can we have done to invest before hard seltzer became hard seltzer? I always like to ask myself, okay, well, what's the next thing, right? Hard seltzer, I, I do kind of agree with management here. I think for Constellation Brands, I think this, the category is here to stay. It will not be growing at 100, 200% every year, of course. But I think the consumption and the people who are going to be drinking it, especially younger consumers, will continue to do so. But what's going to be the thing that disrupts the hard seltzer? And eh, maybe it is CBD beverages, maybe it is cannabis beverages, or maybe it's not. <laughs> it could very well be. I mean, Constellations Management has been excited for a, a long time about these opportunities, both in cannabis-infused beverages and CBD. Part of this is because they are really, really good at taking small premium ideas and turning a lot of gross profit off of those. Mayomi Wines is a an example of this. The company has a lot of expertise in this area, and, and I can see them being able to contribute meaningfully to the bottom line if it doesn't become, at least at first, a huge revenue driver. And I think that you're onto something. And to be frank, like management is willing to let its 
earnings get kicked around by these unrealized gains and losses on their investment in canopy growth uh, because they know that over the long term, uh, a little bit of uh, volatility now investors can see through and and look at uh, what the actual operating earnings were. But but beyond that, I think they're still very bullish on these growth prospects in beverages combining the talents of the two companies. So, we should always keep an eye on that. And I would love to discuss that as um, they progress with you, maybe in a quarter or two, to see how that's going along. It'd be such a fun episode. Yeah, we should definitely still do that. And I have no you know, ability to make this transition any more uh, seamless. So, I'm not going to try. Let's talk about Pinterest. <laughs> I <laughs> Go ahead. Well, you know, I was thinking, Emily, I... I it's like that thing where you you see somebody that you haven't seen in a long time and you can't remember their name, right? And you're walking towards them in a crowd. And you're like, oh gosh, I went to school with that person. I know I'm going to remember the name. I know I'm going to remember the name when I get right close to them this whole time because we have a show that is jumping around because it's earnings season. Both of us have been thinking, okay, what's our transition here? It's like that point where you get and you realize I'm not going to remember this person's name. So now I have to just call it for what it is. Uh-huh. Let's talk about Pinterest. Um, yeah, wow, this was an interesting report to me. Um, Emily, what, what, did the, what did you draw out of the, like the big picture from this? Like just their, their uh, like big picture measurements and, and statistics out of their earnings report, because there's a lot to unpack. Oh, here's the connection. I, it just came to me. Uh, if you can imagine how mildly irritated I was by the CNN hard seltzer headline, multiply that by about 10 for how irritated I was when I saw the market's reaction to Pinterest earnings reports. And I say this, well, yes, I am a Pinterest shareholder. I say this because I think Pinterest, the question for Pinterest has never been what the market reacted to. And what the market was reacting to in this most recent earnings report was a fallback in the number of of average users, monthly average users, especially domestically in the United States, which Pinterest has higher ad revenue on. Obviously, they're able to monetize those users at a higher rate than their international audience. And that caused a huge pullback in the stock. I think it was similar to to Boston Beer in the order of 20 to 25% on the day they released earnings. And I was irritated because everything else for Pinterest was amazing. And I rewind myself back to February, I believe it was around February or March of this year, when Pinterest had their first quarter earnings reports. And I was actually worried. I was thinking about Pinterest. Um, If I wasn't a shareholder then, I was thinking about becoming a shareholder. And I was concerned because I saw a pullback in ad revenue. And the question for Pinterest in my mind has always been, can they reach the level of monetization for their average users that we see from other great social media companies? They have amazing levels of engagement. They have a crazy number of users. They already have what, in my opinion, is probably a peaked number of monthly active users on that platform, over 450 million monthly active users across the world. Can they monetize them? And in that initial quarter, we saw some pullback, some hesitation for advertisers to spend money, even coming out of the pandemic, on the Pinterest platform. And that scared me. That, to me, was the thing that was concerning enough to be like, oh, is the stock going to fall 20%? Fast forward to this most recent quarter, monetization was through the roof. They saw not only small mom and pop shots coming back, but big advertisers, like right enterprise customers 
Coming back to advertise on Pinterest platforms, their average revenue per user for both domestic and international more than doubled in the most recent quarter compared to the year ago period. And people were caught up in a 5% decrease in the average users in the United States when they have over 450 million average users. It's just, it was mind boggling to me. So I, I've gone off on a little bit of a tangent there, but I I was a little surprised to see the market's reaction to say the least. Uh- I was too. To me, the, the really nice revenue uh, story here, to, the top line jumped 125% to about, to about $613 million is the big picture. And a net income margin of 11%. So the company earned $69 million in the second quarter of 2021. That's the big story. Why? Because advertising came back and it drove, as you said, brilliant monetization. That money dropped to the bottom line. What more do you want? At some point, you have to figure out where is the balance in the equation of this company? Is it going to be fast user growth? Is it going to be moderate user growth plus lots of opportunities for monetization. And I think that's what Pinterest is going to be all about. I think it will be hard for them to add users at this really fast rate from here on out. But as you point out, with 450-odd million around the world, now it is time to start focusing on how the company can utilize that base and make money off of it. And when you see enterprise companies begin to put their catalogs, uh, product catalogs on Pinterest without any other type of selling platform, you get a sense of how powerful uh, Pinterest can be as a platform. And now the name is escaping me, of course, but at least one company, this is last quarter when I think I was also worrying about the same principles as the advertising revenue dropped off. Um, They highlighted a company, very prominent brand name, which decided just to go only exclusively on Pinterest with their catalog. So the the idea of, of seeing Pinterest as a platform, the most effective platform to sell your wares if your brand is very well respected, gives you a glimpse into the opportunity long term. Now, we should break down a little bit what's going on with those um, monthly average users and why I think some investors were so scared. The company said that fewer monthly average users, which came in the second quarter to the US, was the result of, I think, some fair weather users that come exclusively through the Pinterest website. They pointed to much higher engagement for mobile device users. That's really the company's core component of users. So basically, management is signaling that, yeah, we've got some users that are going to bounce. They come to us from other channels on the web. They're not really people who are going to open a Pinterest account with a login and then be frequent users and buyers. The ones that we've got coming through mobile are particularly sticky. Management also pointed out that they've got really strong international growth that continues on the user side. So international monthly average users grew by 20%. They're a small component, though, of the overall picture right now. This is still heavily tilted towards the U.S., which brings us to the statistics for monetization. And, and I'm really curious, Emily, to get your thoughts on this. I'm going to read out um, a, a few lines from the table the company presented in its average revenue per user for this quarter. So, average revenue per user in the United States 
grew 103% to $5.08. That's a phenomenal gain. Average revenue per users for international users grew 163% from $0.14 to $0.36 for a total global picture of $1.32 per average user when when you take the U.S. plus the international segment together. I've been following this one line in in their earnings report for a few quarters, the average revenue per user in the international segment. It's so small. It was only 14% this time last year, 14 cents this time last year. It's up to 36 cents versus a whole five bucks and eight cents in the US. What do you make of the growth opportunity here in international? Is this something that can keep growing and maybe be as significant as US ARPU in the long term? Is it something that's going to taper off? And then the company will have to really find ways and avenues to spark growth again. I definitely think there's an opportunity for them to just continue to grow through monetization alone. And I think the best example now, admittedly, I'm comparing them to a world-class company here. So I recognize that this is not a one-to-one comparison, but let's look at Facebook as an example of a business that has managed to monetize its engagement really well. Uh, Facebook has an average revenue per user of, I believe, around $10. Now, that's a blended one between U.S. and international. But right now, when you look at those numbers, just over $5 for U.S. users on Pinterest and just over, what, $0.35 for international users, there's certainly an opportunity for them to expand that engagement. I believe for Facebook, their average revenue per user uh, in the U.S. is closer to $50 a user. So this is just a great opportunity for them And I like it in particular because they target that Generation Z segment so much more effectively than other social media platforms have. And I I do think there's an opportunity for them to continue that, expand that relationship. And I think if investors are getting caught up in just a quick fall off in mobile or monthly active users for Pinterest domestically in this quarter, they're missing the bigger picture. The other quote that I liked from management from this quarter was that virtually all of the difference between their monthly active user guidance and their actual monthly active users in the US this quarter was attributable to decline for people who used Pinterest on the web, not people who were engaging over their so over the mobile app, which do, again, tend to be those younger users, which actually I believe saw a growth in the quarter domestically. So the opportunities for monetization, I think, Increasingly, yes, there's a big opportunity there, obviously just using Facebook as an, a quick comparison, but also just focusing on younger audiences as, as they grow into their own and you can monetize them more deeply as well. With that, let's move on to another company that took a shellacking <laughs> with its report. On the face of it, another good report. And again, Mia culpa. Actually, I don't know Latin for, for blame us. So Mia is you know, my, my bad. I know how to say our bad in Latin, but if I could, I would say our bad here. No transition from Pinterest to Upwork, except to say that we've got a similar narrative. It's a company that reported uh, very strong growth and and very strong earnings, um, but investors weren't very pleased. So our next victim, Upwork, also reported on July 29th, as Pinterest did, gross services volume. So this is the amount of money that's transacted over their platform grew 50% year over year to 876 million. Revenue was up 42% year over year to 124 million. Gross margin improved by two whole percentage points to 73%. Upwork even raised its full year guidance. 
to $490 million to $494 million against revenue guidance of $480 million to $490 million, which they had presented at the previous quarter. This gig economy, freelance platform, Emily, um, just couldn't bring enough to the table. <laughs> Investors um, sold shares of Upwork on its state of reporting. What are your takeaways from this? Yes, I, it, I think Upwork's decline is really indicative of everything that we're seeing happen in the market this earnings season. Um, good businesses, although Upwork has been more challenged, I will say that, um, good businesses reporting decent results, good results, pulling back on, I think, valuation has always been the big concern. And you could have made that argument for Pinterest as well, which is something I didn't mention. But I think in the case of Upwork, that may be what we're seeing here, uh, barely missing there on the bottom line, right? I think earnings were uh, maybe four cents off of what was expected per share, um, decent otherwise, uh, improving that guidance, improving their gross margin. So in my opinion, this is a uh, I think you make a good argument about potentially people taking money off the table, um, just with what an amazing business it's been to own over the last year. But I also think that there's probably some valuation concerns that have come into play. Yeah, it's, valuation will have a lot to do with this. And I think this is one of the things for those who came to the dance latest that they're first out uh, in that this, it's a pricey business um, and, and the stock has gained about 385% since January 1st of 2020. So just that type of rapid ascent, even if you took valuation out of the equation, is always something that investors who have been along for a short ride have in the back of their mind. I'm not going to get this return again, so let me leave. And, And that's not just retail investors, that's some institutional investors as well. When you see a really quick gain in your shares, it's not just an assessment that an individual investor would make. Sometimes you will see hedge funds, pension plans, um, and all types of institutional investors do the same thing, just so sort of bail at the first sign of trouble because they've had accelerated gains. Um, you know, the company is emphasizing some long term investments. I liked that it has something called Project Catalog, which is a response to competitor Fiverr, makes it a little more Fiverr like. I like that they are investing in more enterprise business as is competitor Fiverr. So even at 16 times forward earnings, I see an investment case, especially for those who are investing in a number of platform businesses as maybe a basket. So you're buying a little bit of Upwork, you're buying a little bit of Fiverr, you're buying maybe a little bit of Etsy. Think of other great marketplace businesses, maybe Mercado Libre. Uh, this trend itself is a very strong trend. It becomes quite easy to have recurring revenues, although you, you never see them as such because they're not contractualized. But you see the same buyers and sellers year after year after year transact on platforms. And I think this will be relevant here with these gig economy specialists as more and more people come out of traditional work environments and hang up a shingle they're going to remain on the platforms which provide them the the majority of their annual revenue. So think about small consultants, small graphic artists, even I'm seeing more professional-oriented um, bids on these marketplaces from individual architects, architects and other um, types of professionals. The platforms themselves have a great amount of stickiness in, in the 
solidity of, of their cash flows once they get established. So if you're holding shares of Upwork, I don't think the the report itself is anything that, that you should um, or that should pull you to a sell decision. I, we should, though, say that its net loss was a little disappointing because they had a bit more of a net loss at $0.13 cents per diluted share versus analysts and, and investors' consensus view of a loss of $0.09 cents a share. I tend not to get too hung up on these, but again, you have to pay attention. So, um, a little bit of disappointment there. The company could see a bit better operating leverage, um, and they should as time goes on over the long term anyway. But I think here what you've got is a case of uh, some growing pains. You have to pay the piper sometimes. I'm curious uh, between Upwork and say a Fiverr, because I know those are often ones that investors, I think, compare most freely. Do you have a preference between the two or do you think a rising tide lifts all boats? Yeah, I actually have a preference. Um, I don't own either, but I like Fiverr because I think the management team is a little bit more dynamic. I think they're a little bit more aggressive in their innovation. Uh, They recently introduced on the Fiverr platform a new category that focuses on tech skills, and they're going to be rolling out more in the future. So they're just quicker to isolate parts of the economy where they should have a category. And the way they built their platform, which is more of an easy bid between buyers and sellers for services, turned out to be a model that could hold a faster growth uh, component than Upwork's model. And and as I mentioned before, Upwork is sort of countered by copying a little bit of this. But I, I think of the two management teams, Fivers is just a bit more innovative and aggressive. And at the end of the day, that translates into market share over the longer term. Both are like absurdly valued, overvalued (laughs) right now. (laughs) Do you pay attention to either of these very closely? Do you have a preference, Emily? I do have a preference. Uh, I think Fiverr is probably my preference as well. I I will admit that Fiverr, if you're just looking at relative valuation between the two is obviously the more richly valued, but it's grown faster, has what, in my opinion, seems to be a more scalable business model in the sense that their their margins, I see more opportunity for them to expand margins more rapidly on Fiverr. I like the way their platform is set up a little bit more clearly for the freelancers themselves, um, letting the buyers come to them as opposed to the other way around. I think that may be a preference for the type of freelancers that Fiverr is looking to attract. But what really sold me about this business has been watching their average spend per buyer. And when you say the name Fiverr, I think a lot of people remember the days of Fiverr being $5. And that colors their perception of the business. But the average spend, I believe, is over $215 per order now. So as that spend goes up, so does the revenue sharing that Fiverr gets. They've expanded that really aggressively over the past couple of years. And if they're able to continue to up that number, then in my opinion, that that's real long-term tailwinds. So between the two, I, I think I like Fiverr better, but maybe I'm not giving Upwork enough credit. Uh, I think you're, you're probably, at least in, in my estimation, you're, you're leading the right way. Just to be more specific, in relation to your comments, uh, from what I was saying earlier, the, the tech vertical that I was talking about is focused on data analytics. So it's something that just seems so obvious after you hear it. Yeah, you should have a vertical that lets people who are data scientists sell their wares as freelance gig people to big companies, medium-sized companies. 
but they they just have a way of of isolating categories that are going to bring them that sort of pricing power um, or at least pricing power to the, the sellers of those services. For them, it's it's expressed in their really rich take rate. I think that that is just, they, they just always seem to be one step ahead. The next vertical I'm predicting is going to be an artificial intelligence slash machine learning vertical. If they keep expanding these categories really logically, they'll only promote what's turning out to be a very exciting part of their, their business, which is not to make uh, this sounds so repetitive, but it's Fiverr Business. That's the brand name. What a, what a weird brand name. <laughs> Fiverr Business, let me get this right. Fiverr Business is their business-centric service, the one that's aimed at enterprises. And that's, I think, what's driving a lot of that um, average spend that you're talking about and its acceleration. Awesome. Well, Asit, thank you so much for for coming on and sharing your thoughts on this motley collection of companies. I know we were a little bit afraid that today's episode would be too short, but with us, we never have to worry about that, do we? I don't know why we ever worry. It's great to be (laughs) here, Emily. (laughs) Uh, Well, fools, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say, hey, you can always shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet at us at mfindustryfocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Asat Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on! Mm-hmm.